Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. I've been thinking a lot about uh, how the impact of the uh, global pandemic uh, this year, 2020, uh, is going to shape financial services going forward. Um, I have been thinking about topics such as non-performing loans, uh, the strength of the banking system, uh, and the nature of capital itself, how that's going to be evolving over time. Interestingly, my conversations with many uh, different um, people in financial services, um, you know, reveal that uh, many people in the industry uh, seem to think that the future is going to be a lot about more of the same. Um, And very few banks, uh, very few governments uh, talk about uh, the the fallout that uh, is coming to us from uh, the pandemic, the the need to regrow economies on the strength of um, the local uh, communities, as well as uh, the non-performing loans and the damage to capital uh, that, um, that needs to be captured and quantified uh, in order to help us make sense of the issues that we need to deal with going forward. Uh, I've been very uh, fortunate to be able to run into, almost uh, in a digital sort of way, uh, with Bikram Chowdhury, uh, who says that his business is to start looking at the non-performing loans of all the fintechs, the startups, the peer-to-peer lenders, the the uh, so-called um, um, you know microfinance uh, credit players uh, that are going to be throwing up into the marketplace uh, and create an industry around uh, these distressed assets that are going to be um, surfacing as a result uh, of the pandemic. So um, I've invited him for a conversation. And the most interesting part of Bikram's profile is that he says that he's a recovering investment banker. So let's start with that, Bikram, and uh, start by giving us a sense of, um, you know, who you are and how uh, and, and this new opportunity you're in the process of creating for yourself uh, as a result of the pandemic. So much, Imanul. Thank you for the invite. I run a startup uh, called Greener Capital, which uh, focuses on impact lending. I've spent my career in uh, top-tier investment banking firms, the last of which was Credit Suisse, where I spent 15 years across Hong Kong, London, and then Singapore. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, with... Uh, <clears throat> with Deutsche Bank and before that with Bankers Trust, which is actually taken over by Deutsche Bank. The focus of my career has been on, on large-scale capital markets. So in other words, the movement the, the movement of large sums of capital uh, across facilitated by capital market transactions in, in fixed income, uh, which encompasses you know, the entire structured credit space, you know, the, uh, the illiquid lending space, and of course, uh, the classic credit lending that, that, uh, that banks do. Uh, GreenArk was founded uh, with the uh, with the premise that that you know capital needs to move beyond one metric only, which is the the financial return metric, right? The world of impact uh, investing uh, is looking to <clears throat> capture not just financial returns but also uh, social capital returns, you know, and you can define them in many different ways. You know, people call it ESG, which is the environment, social and governance metrics. 
and impact looks over and beyond that as to what positive effect you are having on the world when you deploy capital. So the, our, our focus in the space is actually on two areas. One is uh, we finance conservation, primarily of, of rainforests, uh, which is a very difficult thing to do because of the lack of metrics around such an activity. And the second is financial inclusion, where you look to you know, the classic micro, which started with microfinance, and we look to, you know, to bring institutional capital into these segments so as to bring capital to the base of the pyramid of, of emerging market economies and poorer countries. We now does this via technology-enabled platforms. You know, we have a tech solution in place that allows us to deploy into micro-lending portfolios and easily scrutinize credit and impact. So Green Arc Capital, is, would I describe that as a, a boutique investment firm? Uh, do you do any underwriting at all? What is your asset under management right now? We are not, not a licensed asset manager. Uh, we are, you know, in the, in the last stages of our, MAS, uh, of our MAS CMS licensing as a P2P fintech, which allows us to offer product to accredited investors, uh, not to retail. However, our platform itself is not geared towards crowdsourcing or crowdfunding of that nature. We work primarily with institutional investors, i.e. large, large, uh, large funds or large banks in order to, uh, to evaluate and, and better, uh, <clears throat> and better capture the risk and returns around the capital that they deploy into the space. Right. So our tech platform is actually a look through. That, uh, that enables large volumes of loans, of micro loans, to be uh, to be uh, to be validated and credit and 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 credit rated at at the loan by loan level. That's one. And secondly, uh, we also run an impact analysis, which allows each loan to you know. So we calculate impact at the at the loan level, which is something that is very rare. And actually, we don't know anyone else who does this. Now, what tends to happen in impact investing and also in ESG investing is that that market, this new asset class, hasn't really kept up you know, with, with, the, with the needs of institutional capital. right? I look at the impact and methodology as credit rating prior to credit rating agencies being ratified or being you know or being enshrined in regulation so if you think back you know you know when when credit rating first started you know people there were there were a number of you know methodologies there were a number of players each of whom claimed that their credit rating process was better than the others and there is no very few common standards now secondly if you look at any any impact fund microcredit fund the way that impact is measured and reported is post fact so typically you would have a sustainability, the equivalent of the sustainability reporting piece, right? So you'll have an impact report that is generated by the said asset manager or the said institution that then reports the metrics that they think are valuable in evaluating their portfolio. However, this is always done post-fact on an annual basis. And a lot of the numbers are actually consultant driven. So they send consultants or auditors into the field who then estimate the impact that has been had, i.e., you know, number of kids educated, gender equality in the portfolio, and so on and so forth. So when we started Green Arc, we 
we took this problem and we reversed it. We said, how can we create this for ourselves or for our investors that, that kind of eliminates all these processes? So what we did was we use the data tape that is used in lending portfolios, right? We use that data tape to actually read off most of the impact metrics that we tabulate. Now, it is important to say that we do not have our own methodology, right? We follow, you know, the, the taxonomy for impact is today maintained by an, a nonprofit called GIIN, the Global Impact Investing Network. They publish a taxonomy of impact metrics that, you know, you can capture as an impact investor. However, they leave it to every specific uh, impact investor to develop the weightages and the metrics that are required. I.e., that's a vast field of metrics, and they say it's up to you to choose whichever metric you require. So think about it as like I would say as financial reporting or ratios. Like so, you have a number of ratios, but you can choose from your perspective which ratios are relevant to you as a as a as a bank or as a as a trading company. It's very similar in the impact reporting space. But we, our methodology is we worked with steering group within impact called the impact management project, which is again, a nonprofit. It's actually funded by a number of institutional funders. They, and they publish recommended methodologies. So we are part of that, uh, let's call it cohort of, uh, of people who work to publish common standards, right? So it's very early days in impact. The reason I'm giving you all this color is because ESG and impact washing has, you know, there is a certain cynicism about how these processes work at the institutional level. People are like, you can report anything. It's all kind of wash, impact wash anyway, right? From a tech perspective, that's our tech solution is, has eliminated that issue. Not entirely, right? But, you know, we have ensured that for the borrowers that we work with, you know, and for the portfolios that we work on, you know, these, these numbers can't be kind of made up. Right, there is a certain, a certain, uh, a certain check and balance. The second thing we do is we also use data science to tabulate and and do uh, what I would call category one checks on the on the on the data that we gather. For example, if there's a portfolio of SMEs in Indonesia, right, and one SME is reporting a a thirty percent a thirty percent female employee ratio. We would then tabulate it to the metrics that we know for that particular country or that region or even that area. So 30% sounds good on the face of it, right? But when you look at when you look at Indonesia, actually the average average SME employs 37%. So this is actually underperforming. So you have that sense check that you know that that goes on at that at that level. So so this is the impact side of it, and of course on the credit side of it, you know we use alternative credit scoring and and and. But we, you know, we actually stay more at the traditional credit level. We have a partnership with the, with the NUS and their Asian Institute of Digital Finance via which we, you know, we pull on the large uh, credit database that they have to be able to score, to credit score the portfolios that we originate, right? So again, from, our, from a methodology perspective, what we'd like to say is that we don't actually create our own methodology. We work with investors based on the data that they require to, you know, to feed them the required, the required, you know, impact data. Right. And on the credit side, of course, we do, you know, the scoring that we do is validated scoring, right? It's not, we don't use a proprietary algorithm, right? But we, 
supervise. We supervise the lenders that we work with and check on the credit scoring via third party measures. To complete the profile, how many portfolios do you have? What is their size and how many customers? Uh, and then on the investor side, um, you know, are you actually working with uh, specific investors uh, using the platform that you've created? We work in the private space. We haven't gone public with, with the platform, right? Uh, but we have, uh, you know, we have 14 lenders across, across, uh, across Southeast Asia that we, you know, that we work. Now, when we say lenders, I mean the last mile lenders, like the, the, the my institutions that actually lend the portfolio, right? Right. And on the institutional side, we work with, uh, you know, like two large institutions to, to, for, for, their, uh, for their deployment of capital. Do yeah. they buy so your portfolio eventually or do, do you, do, are they still just investors? They eventually finance the portfolios, right? Now, now you know, the, 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 the nature of the financing will depend on, uh, let's call it the jurisdiction or the, or the credit worthiness of the portfolio, right? So typically, you know, uh, lenders always keep a certain amount of skin in the game with the portfolios, right? So it's not 100% pass through. Right. So you tip and, and that subordination depends on the comfort level that the lending institution has with the with the end, uh, with the uh, with the microfinance, with the microfinancer or the fintech. OK, so you're a fintech working with fintechs. That is correct. Yeah. You can think of us as a fintech or, or you know, as a fintech of fintechs. So what is your sense of the, um, you know, how the how the whole P2P um, and 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 impact and and um, you know inclusive lending business evolved uh, as a result of the pandemic. What's the what's the scenario out there right now? The impact, to put it mildly, has been brutal, right? So you know, very few very few lenders, whether new or old, right, have have come out uh, positively out of this pandemic, or actually in the pandemic because we're not out of the pandemic yet, right? Yeah. And you've seen loan books, you've seen lenders fail. Uh, uh, you know, you've seen loan books shrink substantially, sometimes to the nature of 80%. You've seen massive de-risking of, 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 uh, of balance sheets. So not just fintech lending, not just P2P lending, but you've seen de-risking of regular balance sheets as well. Right. And of course, you've seen entire sectors crater, right? Tourism, hospitality, you know, the entire travel industry, you know, all what I would call growth sectors in classic emerging market economies. You've seen all these all these sectors kind of nosedive and, you know, and, and go into distressed asset land. Not because obviously of any fault of their own, but something like a pandemic is very much a macro event, right? And it impacts everything down from, you know, once the demand dries up, then everything up the supply chain kind of suffers. The simple fact that the global economy is expected to contract between five to eight percent this year, right? Yep. So, and 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 that means that hundred million people are going to be pushed into poverty this year. But when you look at this, when you look at this hundred million people, right? You know, you can see here that you know eighty percent of the people falling into extreme poverty or below the poverty line, right, are obviously from poor and middle-income countries, right? Not the rich countries as such, because they have strong safety nets. They have strong relief programs, like for Singapore or for Europe. But of course, you know, when you go to India, Indonesia or, or anybody else, well, guess, you know, there's not much of social backstop, right? Yeah. And of course, you know, COVID-19 has a disproportionate impact on populations, right? With the most 
socio-economically disadvantaged segments taking the brunt. People talk a lot about K-shaped, K-shaped recoveries and you know recessions, right? This is very much what you see here and what people are talking about is very much the K-shaped. In other words, if you're a white collar, if you're a white collar employee, there is some disruption to your life. To a certain extent, business does continue, right? Right. However, if you're a blue collar worker, I mean, the, the impact on your livelihood and your work has is substantial to, for the pandemic, right? Your factories yeah. closed down. You know, if you work as a tourist guide, you can forget about business. If you are, you know, if you are, a, if you are anywhere near, you know, on a on a on a daily work basis, you can imagine the impact that's had, right? So this is this is very much what's happening in the world out there. This is now just a bit of an Asia focus, right? Of the 100 million people that, you know, globally that would go into poverty this year, approximately 38 million are East Asia, which is, you know, uh, excludes South Asia. And then if you look at the graph, right? These are the percentage of share of households with lost earnings in the crisis. And again, you can see that there's a disproportionate impact the poorer you are as a country. The Myanmar, you know, you have an 85%, you know, uh, 85%, let's call it impact on households, right? Indonesia is very close to 80%, Cambodia 80%, and so on and so forth, okay? So again, coming back to the thesis that, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the impact is disproportionate on poorer countries. Now, this is something that everyone knows intuitively, is that a pandemic, increases inequality massively right and actually you know if you if you look at the numbers and these are imf numbers they estimate that the inequality gains in inequality that have been achieved right since 2008 are going to be wiped out totally in this one year right so in other words 10 years of progress are going to be wiped out in one year and uh, welfare of course is again one of those uh, you know difficult to estimate uh, indicators like you know welfare of an individual or welfare of an economy but the imf has taken has taken a stab at it on as you can see with the graph on the right hand side and you can see here that the welfare decline you know has gone from is is actually there's a substantial impact and the only mitigant to the to the poorer quality of life is your ability to telework. In other words, what you and I are doing right now, right? If you have that ability, there is a certain cushion. Your the blow to your earnings or to your you know to your um, uh, to your <clears throat> income or to your quality of life would be reduced, right? However, if you are, for example, in a in a in a, in a rural area or you are, you know, you're being educated in a school with no internet facilities, guess what? That's not a mitigation that you can count on. I've seen the, the rise of uh, impact investment, of microfinance, of inclusive finance over the last, you know, 30 years or so. And, you know, you have the origins of Grameen Bank, for example, and, and so on, uh, yep. you know, originating the, the industry. And a lot of that origination had to do with being very sensitive um, to uh, the nuances of the local communities. Um, you know, in the case of Bangladesh, it was uh, women working in groups which were very sustainable and so on. And when these models were extended to, you know, like countries like India, um, you know, where 
um, where the private equity guys came in and, and the you know, venture capitalists came in with hot money from the US, mostly uh, using the same terminology, uh, uh, inclusive finance and micro, micro credit and so on. They found that it didn't work because they were trying to deploy hot money. And secondly, uh, they weren't sensitive enough to the um, uh, you know, to the profile of the communities that they were serving. So if they were serving migrant men, male population living in, um, you know, on the outskirts of the city, uh, in, you know, in slums or, or migrant migrant uh, locations um, outside the city, the, the credit profiles, um, you know, um, they, they, they change, they, they're dramatically unsustainable and so on. So, um, so deploying inclusive finance um, in emerging markets uh, required us to be very sensitive. And now um, what you are involved in is the second half of the business, which is collections, uh, which is uh, credit quality, um, you know, and, and sustainability for the long term, right? And, and of yeah. course, the, the economics of, uh, of um, you know, uh, the Gini co coefficient, the, the disparity between uh, rich and poor and so on, and the availability or the access to capital, to, to income and so on. Um, you know, so I, I'm very excited about what you're doing because you're now seeing the second half of the equation. Uh, and you said, um, you know, you have alternative uh, credit score models uh, that you use. Um, and on top of that, you, you have the, the fact that many governments have been very uh, proscriptive and, and uh, uh, very st stringent with peer-to-peer um, with, with -peer lending. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the reasons peer-to-peer -peer lending is floundering uh, is because of regulation being put in place. In the U.S. and in, and in the Western world, peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending has, um, has, has found a niche which is, you know, it's like actually more subprime lending uh, below a very highly banked population. Whereas in, in the countries where peer-to-peer -peer lending uh, seem to have a better uh, story to tell, uh, are in developing countries, but there the problem is uh, regulation and so on, right? So, so t talk to us a little bit about the the space that you're playing in, and what are the regulation of the of the space that you're playing in, or what are the operating premises the, the of the of the space that you're playing in? So, you know, as you know, household credit to GDP, right, is a is a is a good indicator of of uh, of banking and financial inclusion penetration in a society when you look at the developed market right typically household credit to gdp right is around is about at 80 to 100 percent when you look at it for countries like indonesia the philippines or and or india right that number is 17 percent for india it is 12 percent for indonesia and it is 10 percent for the philippines so as you rightly said Sub, uh, fintechs in, in developed markets have found their niche below this pyramid, right? So, you know, there's banking going down, there's mortgages, there's, you know, there's regular credit card assets, there's, you know, uh, I would say bank lending. And, and below that is where the fintechs operate, right? They, they look at, at the margin, they look at the guys who have been rejected and, you know, and, and MSMEs that have been rejected and look to give them credit. That is not the case in, in emerging markets, right? In emerging markets, when you take an Indonesia or a Philippines or an India where credit penetration is still in its teens, right? You can see that there's still a lot of low hanging fruit for, for lending institutions. Okay. 
now the the issue of course is how do you how do you penetrate this how do you scale these lending models right how do you ensure that you know you're taking the right credit decision how do you look at it from a cultural and a community perspective to ensure that what you're doing is sustainable right and that you are in in in, in conformity with with let's call it social norms and and or what the society expects out of its out of out of capital deployment now obviously the regulatory space has really played second fiddle to this to this regulators tend not to be the most responsive of 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 let's call it of 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 advocates for this for this space and so you've seen i would say uh, even new lenders with innovative models struggle in the in in the area now why does that happen you can't really blame the regulators because they've been colored by the you know by various crises right that has happened in you know in in respective markets right you know where they've seen kind of you know kind of new models come and go and you know and seen uh, i would say misrepresentation and fraud at a massive scale i would pin down the pin down the issues around the regulatory environment to a uh, prior 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 bad experiences in other words credit credit crisis and secondly a lack of faith in their own ability to govern and and stay on top of these new lending models right so even as regulators the institutions lack faith in their own ability to be able to monitor risk in the, at the institutions level right so what you see is that even if new institutions are given licenses they tend to get especially in india they tend to get buried on the paperwork you know from a regulatory perspective and find it very difficult to to do their businesses and and or two they're denied licenses or denied let's call it operating operating freedom to be able to fulfill the original premise so i won't blame regulation as what well. you know i'll say that they're colored by their previous experience and they also because they're not as tech enabled or not as forward looking as the new bad breed of lenders they find it very difficult to allow them to operate without what they consider adequate supervision right they don't have the comfort of of supervising these uh, these new age lenders right whereas if you think about it from a developed market perspective i think a lot of the regulators have taken the view that these are not too big to fail yet they operate you know they operate at a scale where they're experimenting and it's fine to have you know a few uh let's call it a few mix ups etc just so that you know to see if there's something innovative comes out of that right so i think it's a bit of an attitude attitudinal change as well right and of course you know you see that across across the region for example vietnam today still does not have a proper uh, digital lending uh supervisory policy right even now right even now the fintechs are regulated as as a pawn brokers or you know or old style money lenders right so so there's definitely this gap i would say between governance and 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 where the market has gone to right so i see this as a you know a call for the supervisory institutions to modernize right okay. rather than rather than kind of you know that oh they are holding back i think the faster the regulators get their act together in how they monitor and enable technology technology lending the the better it will be so if you're not an in, you're not a fund manager uh, what is the role that you play uh, and who are your clients and how are you onboarding them so we work today with institutional investors right who are 
and and we act as advisors to their lending because we are not licensed to intermediate these pools of capital right but we help them in the origination and the risk analysis and the credit analysis of their of their target lending right? okay that's, so they they, they buy the portfolio themselves directly. themselves that is correct. okay we're not a balance sheet player so the institutions that that buy these portfolios actually a large family offices okay specifically in the europe and the us who have defined you know who have defined their own uh, impact lending mandates right so you have today a number of large pools of capital that look to deploy capital with 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 impact objectives so you know we work with these with these investors right to deploy the uh, the their their capital in line with their own impact objectives in the in, in the family office space the preferred alignment is to the un sdgs the sustainable development goals and again the way that these sdg alignment is achieved is via the impact metrics so this this link sounds tenuous to you but you know at the same time once you have the impact metrics mapped at the core portfolio level it's quite easy to look at you know for example how much contribution are you having to gender in your portfolio how many additional women are you being employed etc so the entire process is mapped on and therefore these investors so you know can look at what they want what they want to achieve and look at how how well those lending portfolios are achieving these goals and what sizes are we talking about typical transaction transaction <laughs> would be uh, between 5 to 10 million dollars at the micro institution level would i argue that the cost of managing a distressed portfolio or an impact portfolio is higher than that of a traditional portfolio uh, i would say so intuitively you would say yes intuitively right however you know you, that's the precise uh, nature of having a tech enabled platform that automates this, these requirements, right? So the and and you know one of the big issues in in the in the in the in the microfinance, financial inclusion, lending, and and the impact space is the is the notional size, right? So what you find is that the more you can reduce the per cost transaction cost, the more you can facilitate smaller transactions that are more impactful. So yeah. the entire premise behind having this this uh, and that's why we call us as a fintech is having this process tech enabled is that it allows you to scale and keep your cost per transaction down to competitive levels right so for example in a large institution like like credit suisse the the cost of onboarding a client just the kyc and onboarding any any kind of client is something to the tune of 20 to 30 thousand dollars and this is ignoring the, you know, the uh, let's call it the lending cost and the diligence and everything else. It's just the KYC part, right? So that immediately for a firm like that to be able to uh, to do a two million dollar transaction, the economics don't make sense. So therefore, for a financial for a financial institution, you know, you need to you need to take that number to twenty million dollars for that entire transaction to be economically feasible for that for that financial institution, right? However, for for base of the pyramid lending it's very rare to have a 20 million dollar transaction size right which is why you see institutions not participating in that in the in those in those in those smaller transactions right via technology and the aggregation of lending portfolios you can actually get it to that you can actually get that scale right so you in other words you blend portfolios to be able to achieve that 
And, okay. and, and so one of the one of the premises of having a tech platform and having all this spending the time and the effort to build these these facilitation pathways is right. that now right. you can effectively finance two million dollar tickets as effectively as you as you did with 20 million dollar tickets you can also get smaller investors who for example would only invest two million dollars you can also get smaller investors who participate in such portfolios and these are qualified investors uh, because not every jurisdiction right. cannot because they are high risk they are not rated portfolios they're not officially they don't have an official credit rating right they don't have the the regulatory credit rating etc yeah it's interesting because i've actually seen p2p itself um, you know being um, being pushed in china here and uh, by different players um, some um, you know, go straight matching uh, investors with um, borrowers directly and, and at a retail level, uh, and some take that portfolio approach. Um, at the retail level, it was very uh, successful initially, but um, in a GDP that's growing at, you know, at that time, you know, 8 to 12%, and now this year at least it's 6%, 6% is still very good. Um, you actually end up a in a situation where you've got more investors than you have borrowers, um, you know, and the quality of the borrowers, you, you actually need to do far more due diligence. You need to be far more, um, you know, um, secure and, and, and defensive, um, you know, in, in building the business. You're not an investment bank. You're not touching the portfolio. They don't go on your balance sheet. So you're not yeah. a fund manager. Uh, and, you know, and, and so you, you're more like a service provider, um, you know, to 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 both sides of the equation. So so you know, uh, how much of the actual business do you see, uh, or do you only visit with them when they are when they are distressed? And and also, um, do you what are you seeing on the on the distress front uh, in 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 the markets that you serve uh, as a result of the pandemic? I would say what you call the consulting model, or you know, whether you call it the facilitation model. Uh, I think capital markets have provided that utility function for for you know since cap since markets existed, right? And our role in that is to is to is to direct capital towards this you know to the to these lesser known segments, right? We we're not interested in you know in 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 uh, in helping people buy China sovereign bonds, right? That's not our that's not our business, right? Our business is to look at private loan portfolios that are being originated with high impact and attract institutional capital to it. Our ability to attract capital is, 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 is measured by our own, uh, by our own A, uh, our own origination abilities, A, right? And B, uh, the premise that I talked to you about, which is how do you reduce the, the cost and the throughput of this analysis? Because this analysis needs to be done for every investor, right? No investor invests in blind pools. So, so the, the premise is that you, as you lower the average cost, the, 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 the true cost, the throughput for the throughput, you will attract more capital to the space in impact, which is our premise, which is our way of, let's call it creating impact in this space. Now, the second question, unfortunately, is, is, is exactly where we are, are focusing on right now, because we see the necessity to finance these portfolios is what we see is the driving need of the current crisis, right? So what we've seen is that a lot of the portfolios that were originated in bull market times, uh, you know, and, and, you know, have obviously 
gone distressed in, in, in terms of proportions. These NPL numbers are high and there is currently no institutional process via which you can deal with these NPLs, right? So the idea is how do you create an ethical NPL, uh, NPL management process for all these new portfolios that have been created in the last few years? How do you ensure that they are digested comfortably and how do you ensure that these loans are worked out with minimum disruption to A, the individuals involved and B, the uh, the economic conditions that prevail in these markets today? Right. right. And this is still very much uh, ongoing. Well, what we're not getting is uh, a true picture of, um, you know, what the fallout really is, um, you know, and, and, and by country. So uh, it, the, the fallout might well come um, over time, uh, you know, countries releasing data showing that, that the NPLs are much higher than, than that, that the traditional institutions are stressed. Um, and also the way in which they're capitalized. In fact, that's one conversation that I wanted to have with you on the investor side, right? Um, and you were saying that uh, investors, uh, the, the nature of capital uh, was different, um, you know, before ESG and after ESG. Uh, give us a sense of, uh, you know, some of these uh, concepts that you use to attract uh, investors and, and maybe the reason uh, that uh, traditional institutions in the West might well be interested in investing in uh, uh, impact portfolios. The global asset management industry today is $80 trillion. Right? Of this, and this is across all assets, right? In 2015, right? Approximately 24% called itself ESG, ESG funds assets, right? So, and that's still a large number, but you know, 24% of the industry had already tagged themselves with ESG labels, right? Then they are, so they invest in conformity with some kind of policy, right? Environmental, social, and governance policy. Now, the bulk of this was avoidance. In other words, they would not invest in like tobacco or, you know, armaments, etc. But they still, that branding was useful. As of 2020, 50% of the industry, 5-0, right, is ESG labeled. Five years, what you've seen is the transformation of an entire, of the entire asset management industry to go from, let's call it one quarter, right, or less than a quarter, like, you know, sustainably labeled to 50% uh, sustainability uh, labeled or pledging in some form or fashion that they will follow these policies. And if you look at the estimates of this, you know, for example, there was a good Deutsche Bank report on, on, on ESG that said that they expect 90% of the industry to be ESG labeled by 2025. Why is this happening? One is the large wealth transfer that you're seeing in, in, in the West from the baby boomer generation to the millennials, right? So this is the largest wealth transfer in the history of the world, right? $24 trillion or so is being, is in the, in this decade is moving from the baby boomer generation to the millennial generation. And the millennial generation truly looks at and, and has a lens on capital, right? And their own lifestyles that they believe in sustainability, right? They believe in, you know, in, 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 in kind of, giving back to society in, 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 in kind of ensuring that they are responsible stewards of the planet and of their of, of the of the resources that they that they that they have seen come through which is not true of our generation if you look at private banks and you know at the studies that they've done 
you see that that uh, that uh, you know that millennials almost tend to have a large a much higher proportion of sustainably labeled assets in their own portfolios in their own investing portfolios as compared to earlier generations the change that you know that will will drive this this through the second thing is of course regulation right you can already see that there's you know there's regulation at the eu level there are consultation papers out on you know on 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 differing capital standards for brown assets versus light green assets and blue assets the you know the next iteration of financial regulation is, is going to include sustainability metrics right you know the eu has the sfdr the sustainable finance disclosure regulation which will require all asset managers and financial advisors to classify the investment funds by March 2021. So it's actually, it's not even in the future, it is now, right? Okay. And, and then you can see here, there are three categories, the gray, light green, and dark green. So if you're an asset manager in, in the European Union today, you will by regulation have to disclose what proportion of your assets conform to which category right yeah so and already the banks are putting in place uh you know capital metrics right for 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 such for this to come into risk weighted assets as well okay if you look at it of the factors one there's a massive awareness and a generational shift right and and luckily the you know the the younger people today you know are far more conscious of their own collective responsibilities than our generation was right and two is that you're seeing this rapidly being enshrined in regulatory environments right now the us has of course under the present administration you know gone backward in this space right but i expect you know they will definitely pick up this bit and once you know the new administration comes in right? uh, you know in terms of how they regulate this space i was conscious that this discussion was meant to be on non-performing loans so you can see this is an snp estimate for asia pacific npas and credit losses and snp estimates that NPAs can rise by 600 billion and credit losses in 2020 alone, just to be clear, this is not forward looking, right? This is just for this year alone, is 300 billion. And importantly, they predict a pretty severe hit to banking systems in emerging market countries. So for example, you know, they rate India, Mexico, or South Africa, that are going to take probably four years to even emerge with capitalization level, which is pre-crisis. And, and the developed market and you know the other markets are not that well either. So they're predicting that these markets will probably get there by 2023. That's the US, the UK, France, you know, Australia, Brazil, and so on and so forth. So, so you know, the numbers are pretty grim. And as you said, there's not a lot of regulatory discussion on this, there's not a lot of public policy discussion on actually how how even post-crisis, how will this be mitigated? How will these systems be recapitalized, right? How will you ensure that capital is, you know, is, is adequate to, uh, you know, to, uh, to kind of 
flow back into these economies and allow because it's not just enough to print money right or monetize monetize debt as people have been doing in this crisis and then you had back. another point related to that that the that the quality of capital or the, the definition of capital uh will change as a result and once you put in an ESG component um you know capital will look very different uh, you know a triple a rated capital will look different from a triple b rated capital um uh, because now there's this added component and then the countries that that actually benefit from this re-rating uh uh are, are no longer the the developed stable countries but the countries where capital can make a difference on impact you know so so the the whole the whole character of capital changes as a result I I agree with you the earlier you know you know the earlier microfinance lending that happened in India was quote unquote hot money right like you know yeah. money looking for financial return and with a very short uh, uh time time uh, time horizon right like how fast can I get out how fast can I flip it and and that causes issues right as you see these metrics come into mainstream finance even at the institutional level and and honestly at the bank level you know you this is very very positive from a global em perspective right because you know this entire north south divide in a certain sense has been about the exploitation of the south southern south, southern economies right natural resources going out capital you know because capital is scarce you can command a premium for your capital and that's how you you know you play the the value extraction game but yeah. more and more you know and hopefully the sooner this happens you know sooner this enshrined in regulation uh you know you you will you will see that uh that people are playing more attention to this and 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 of course this is a virtuous cycle right once asset managers see that it's easier to raise capital with an esg tag right and right now you are seeing let's call it a little bit of cynical arbitration arbit, you know cynical people in the space they're like oh let's go raise money with an esg and then we'll do whatever we have to do with it right but but increasingly that that arbitrage will narrow right if right. you are raising money with an esg tag well there's going to be governance around that right and then you will be you will have to ensure from a compliance and a reporting perspective that you are actually following the social objectives that you laid out i think this is a really positive development and should be encouraged is my point one last point that i want to test with you sure. uh which is that in traditional banking um and just taking off from the point about um the way in which microfinance had evolved traditional banking um you know has a formula in that uh, both the asset and the liability side of the business uh should match each other in terms of accountability in terms of you know the nature of the the both the assets and the liabilities they they, they there's a kind of a a a, a dimension a, um a synergy between assets and liabilities which is increasingly not necessarily uh related um uh, in capital markets and in the new forms of finance um you know so if you take um a lot of the digital banks that have evolved in in the in Europe today um they all great on the liability side and then they they you know they are hamstrung when it comes to the to to the uh, deploying on the, the the asset side right and even when they do deploy it on the asset side the issue is not so much uh, how much they can raise or how cheaply they can raise but who they raise it from um you know and and um, the the accountability uh, and and so on otherwise the, the, the business model just doesn't just doesn't hold and and you uh 
are right now matching uh, investors uh, to distressed assets that are arising from uh, today's uh, you know pandemic and so on. Now, uh, what what sort of uh, synergies or uh, dyna dynamism that you need to see between um, you know the investor and the assets being invested in um, you know in order to make this a long term sustainable. Uh, business model for yourself. What you're seeing in the, especially in the developed markets, is you know that the neo banks have been focusing on the liability side of the balance sheets. Right? They've been looking strong at attracting, at attracting deposit money, right, via their regulated, rather regulated product and superior customer service and superior, superior, uh, yeah, their superior digital offerings. Okay. But once the once these capitals come on, they found it difficult in the, to build the traditional side of the of the balance sheet. I would take a slightly more nuanced view on that, and you know, and actually take you back to the theory of why companies exist. Right? Companies exist when the internal friction between transactions that is inside a company, right, is lower than the external friction. In other words, these uh, the company itself. Within the company, internal transactions are less have are, are are take less effort to do, and therefore it makes sense to aggregate into companies and have a pool, right? Now, if you take that into the digital space, what you're seeing is the bucketing of of specialized of specialized uh, services and facilities. So the neo banks have proven themselves very strong at attracting deposit money on the liability side, right? As long as they can deploy this money externally without without the same friction, right? You know, or with an equivalent internal friction that a JP Morgan does or a DBS does, right? The system as a whole is fine. So now the the need of the hour, for example, with the neo banks is to find those asset only uh, specialists that allow them to deploy the capital that has been raised from you know this particular bank bunch of licensed institutions into the next into the specialized lending institution because increasingly unless you're a too big to fail bank you won't have both sides of it right you need to focus and you need to specialize even when you look at the large private wealth managers like in ubs or cs their focus or their what they're good at is attracting private banks and attracting private uh, private wealth and high net worth investors they're not necessarily good on the on the asset deployment side. That's something they've had to create over the years. In fact, the premise for Credit Suisse taking over first Boston was exactly that they needed to deploy capital, right? There was too much capital on the Credit Suisse balance sheet that they, you know, and they were deploying it to the first Boston franchise, right? But I would put to you the counter argument that in today's more transparent world and more tech-enabled world. You don't need to do this. You don't need to have the same institution doing both, right? As long as you can efficiently deploy this capital from one institution to the other via good capital market linkages. Thank you very much for that. That's a very in incredible uh, insight that that uh, contributes to uh, how we assess uh, how the different players will evolve over time. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.